the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Right now, at this very moment, in this very room, there are hundreds of songs floating through the air. From a cappella hymns to death metal, from Elvis Presley to Kanye West. Yet we can't hear any of these songs, and the radio waves that carry them are invisible to us, despite the fact that we are surrounded by them. But turn on a radio and tune it to the right frequency, and that music will fill our ears, the words will fill our minds, and the song may even permeate our hearts. Temptation is much like this. There are all kinds of temptations, and they surround us every day, from sexual to financial, from jewelry to happiness. We can't all see them. We can't all hear them. But we are surrounded by them. And if the right temptation hits a particular frequency, the right individual with the right struggles in the right state of mind that interest, that desire, that temptation will fill his ears, will fill his mind, and may even fill his heart. So what do we do? What do we do when temptation strikes? As believers, we understand this is part and parcel of life on earth. And it bothers us. We struggle with it. We talk about it. Because it's something we want to resist. Because we want to avoid sin. We want to avoid dishonoring our God, our Savior, our Creator. The Bible is very clear about this. That we are to resist, we are to avoid, that we are to flee. But what do we do? How do we do that? What do we do as believers when temptation strikes? What do we need to know? And how do we respond to what we know in order to resist temptation? Well, this morning as we continue our study in the book of James, I believe James gives us a foundational answer. And would you turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. We have been studying verse by verse through the epistle of James, and we find ourselves this morning on this topic of temptation and sin in James chapter 1, Verses 13 through 15. Would you follow along as I read from the New American Standard? James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, this morning I want to give you three responses to temptation 
in the pursuit of holiness. Three responses to temptation in the pursuit of holiness. In other words, we're only going to respond rightly if we truly desire godliness, holiness, to honor God. And our first of three responses to temptation in the pursuit of holiness we find in verse 13, and it is avoid accusing the Lord. Avoid accusing the Lord. I want to read for you again verse 13 where we find this point. James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And so in addressing the source of temptation, James begins by telling us where temptation does not come from. It does not come from God in any way, shape, or form. Now this is important to understand because the sole reason that temptation bothers us is because we actually want to please the Lord. If we have no desire for holiness, if we have no desire to obey or please the Lord, we wouldn't care about temptation. We would want temptation. We would give in to temptation as much as possible. So the pull to disobey Him in sin as believers is something we'd rather not have to deal with. The fact of the matter is, however, that we face temptation every day, multiple times a day. Each and every one of us, not as a group, every single individual faces temptation on a daily basis, if not an hourly, if not a minute-by-minute basis. And so, in talking about how to resist temptation, let's begin by talking about what temptation is. The Greek word that we have translated here as temptation, the basic meaning is testing or proving. And we've seen this same word in James 1 several times because it's the same word for trial. Now, depending on the context, context is king, remember? A lot of the problems that people have with the Bible who don't understand it are not part of the church are because they pick and choose verses and take them out of context. If you were to take anyone, even your favorite novel, and pick one sentence out of context, you can basically say whatever you want. Context is very important. And so, depending on the context, this Greek word can either mean a trial or a temptation to sin. Now, if you remember, when we talked about trials, there are two kinds, external and internal. External would be your typical trial. Right? including things that are internally in your body, a sickness, a hard uh, co-worker, difficulty in relationships, things like that. Okay? Internal is simply a temptation to trial. There are some contexts, however, where the word is used solely for temptation to sin or evil. And again, the context will determine whether the Greek word is referring to trials or testings, as we saw in verse 12, or if it refers to the draw, the desire, or the solicitation to sin or evil, as it does here in verse 13. Same Greek word, completely different meanings. And here, it is the same usage as uh, it's used in different places in the Scriptures. The same Greek word in this context is used in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil was tempting him to disobey the Father, to break up the Holy Trinity. 
And understanding what temptation in this context is, James tells us that in the midst of temptation, we are to never think, oh, this is God. This is God tempting us to sin. And when James here in verse 13 says, don't say that he is not using the word only in the literal sense, like don't verbally communicate this to other people, but he means even in your own mind. Don't even speak to yourself, oh, this is from God. Don't rationalize it in this way. Don't even think this. Why? Well, because it's not true. God does not tempt us to evil. And we know this is true not just because it says it here, he doesn't tempt you, but also as we dig deeper because James explains that his very character, God's very character, dictates that he will not tempt us to sin. The word for here indicates the explanation for why we should never say this. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. And as we have seen much of already in our short time in James chapter 1, the character of God dictates much of his promises as well as how we order our lives according to those promises, how we respond to those promises, how we live in light of those promises. And here, God's character tells us that he doesn't tempt anyone, first and foremost, because he himself is untemptable. That's very important to understand. The English word I just used, untemptable. It's not that he is conquering his desires for sin. There is nothing that tempts him. He cannot be tempted to evil. Ultimately, this is because God has nothing to do with evil. And since temptation in this sense is a desire to sin, God is not susceptible to temptation. Because sin is what? Well, sin is disobedience to God. Sin is missing the mark. All biblical definitions. But another definition that you are probably familiar with is that sin is any violation of the character of God. So it just makes no logical sense that he would be drawn to do something that is outside of who he is, outside of his very character. It goes against his character as much as it would be for us to jump in the ocean and be able to breathe there for hours on our own or to survive in an atmospheric vacuum. It's absolutely impossible. Another way to put it, is that God is invincible to the assault of evil. And since He has chosen the redeemed, because He has chosen us to be the redeemed, and that means we are His children, which involves emulating Him as much as humanly possible, He has no desire to bring about this temptation to evil in us, in His family, in His children. Now, we understand God's sovereignty. It doesn't mean that God is not somehow involved in temptation as He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. But what we are talking about, what the clear teaching here is, is that He is not directly responsible for our temptation and He is definitely not responsible for your sin. It's not His fault. 
when it comes to trials. We have seen that God is directly involved in using those to grow us in perseverance and holiness. We have seen this from different angles in James chapter 1. Difficulties, hardships that produce endurance and holiness and perfection. It's the same, uh, it's the same idea, same principle really, of you going through difficulties in school, in college, so that you can be better at your craft. It is the same idea when you go to the gym where biologically you are literally breaking down that muscle so that it will persevere in the future or at the next workout and it will be bigger and stronger. There's nothing evil about those things. Can we respond to those things in evil? Absolutely. But God is not intending to do that and God does not put difficulty in our lives hoping that we will sin. That's what James is saying here. He has nothing to do with evil. He does not tempt us to sin. He is sovereign over the circumstances in which we may respond in sin, but he did not put those situations in our lives so that we would sin. So the consequent temptation to sin is from ourselves, as we'll see in our next point. A good example of the difference of trials versus temptation is seen in the life of Abraham. And it's a great example that people often use because it says in that passage that God tested Abraham. But there is never in that narrative a push or a draw for Abraham to pursue evil. Could he have chosen to disobey? Absolutely. In that case, he did not. But if he did, hypothetically speaking, it was not because God wanted him to. It was not because God was leading him there. Testing, yes. Tempting to sin, no. Blaming God for your temptation because of what we have seen and what we understand about God's character, the disassociation from evil, is like blaming someone for parking in front of your driveway when that person doesn't even own a car. Or accusing someone of being rude to you at work last Monday when last Monday he was in New York on vacation. In other words, it is impossible. He cannot do it. He does not do it. He will not do it. Now in our sin, in our pride, our natural tendency when difficulty comes, especially such that we are tempted to sin, is to blame other people. Even at the original sin, the first thing Adam does when confronted by God is to what? Blame Eve. Not his fault. But if you've read the passage or remember the passage, he is ultimately blaming whom? God. The woman you, God, gave to be with me. And although we may not directly accuse God for our temptation, we can Blame God's sovereignty. We can excuse our sin because God is sovereign. He put temptation in my path. What did He expect? Or more broadly, in blaming Him for how the world is. We must be careful. We know better. It is the fool who blames God. It is the fool who shakes his fist at God. Proverbs 19.3 says, The foolishness of man ruins his way. 
but his heart rages against the Lord. It is his choice, but he shakes his fist at God. Listen, guys, we need to have a high view of God. We need to understand his holiness. We need to genuinely have a fear of our God. He is not to be mocked, nor is his word to be twisted to be used against him. See, God is in control of all things. So he's tempting me to sin. Don't do that. Careful. In the midst of temptation, if you are going to use any theology or any verse in God's word, let it be this verse. He does not tempt. He cannot tempt. The very character of God disallows any temptation to evil in him and disallows any form of temptation to evil from him. But if temptation doesn't come from God, where does it come from? And that question is answered in our second fundamental response to conquer temptation. Amplify taking the blame or taking the responsibility. Amplify taking the blame or the responsibility. Look at verse 14 again. But, so if God doesn't tempt, but then each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. In other words, temptation comes from ourselves. Specifically, our sinful desires or what James calls lust. Now let's start by talking about what lust is. Then look at what it does in the context of temptation. Lust is literally any strong desire that is directed toward a particular object, thing, emotion, person, whatever it is. It is simply a strong desire. In fact, both the NIV and ESV translate it here as desire. Craving would be a good modern word for this. But you have to understand that both in Greek in general as well as the New Testament, this word is neutral. It is not automatically negative as we tend to think of lust. Again, context is king. Depending on the context in which it is used, the word lust or desire can be positive or negative. I'm going to give you a few examples. And in all of these examples, it is the same Greek word that is translated here in the NAS as lust. A positive connotation would be in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23 where Paul says he has the desire to depart this world and be with Jesus Christ in heaven. Same word for lust. It's a strong desire. Jesus uses this word in a positive sense at the Last Supper when he says to the disciples in Luke twenty-two fifteen, and I quote, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have longed to have one last Passover with you, my friends, before I suffer and die. Paul uses it in a similar way in speaking of his longing to be with the Roman church in person in Romans fifteen twenty-three, And so we see that the word desire translated here lust can be something that is 
positive. It is a desire for something good and even in God's eyes, holy and righteous. Of course, there are plenty of usages of this Greek word in the negative sense, which is how we typically understand the word lust in English today, especially in the church. In two of the three besetting descriptive sins of the world listed in 1 John 2.16, we have the word lust. He says, for all that is in the world, by the way, he prefaces this by telling believers they should not love the world and why they should not love the world. And he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Prior to listing the components of the fruit of the Spirit, Paul lists the deeds of the flesh. And he introduces or leads into listing the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5.16 with this. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Again, that's the word lust there, lust of the flesh. In Ephesians 2, he describes the wickedness of the unbeliever by reminding us believers that we were once like them. And in Ephesians 2, 3, he says, Among them, unbelievers, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so there's a, a very profound and stark usage of the negative of lust to the degree that those who are enslaved to their lusts are children of wrath, the wrath of God. And so, as you can see from the examples, although the Greek, used, the Greek word used is the same, the context tells us whether this neutral word, desire, lust, longing, is being used as something negative or something positive. The context of James chapter 1 and verse 14 clearly shows he is using it in the negative sense, in the sense of sin, in the sense of disobedience, in the sense of evil. Now to be clear, although when we use the word lust in a negative way, Today in the church, we typically are referring to sexual sin or sexual desires. We've seen from these examples that there is a broader meaning that refers to longing for anything that God has prohibited. And that's why, and that's the way, rather, James is using it here in explaining the source of temptation. It is not just lust or temptation of a sexual nature. It is a sinful desire of anything. Even something that could be a good desire in another context, but you have a sinful heart, and so that desire is sinful. Having seen what lust is, let's look at its role in temptation and sin. Look back from the beginning of verse 14. James writes, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The word or the phrase each one tells us about the universality of temptation. In other words, nobody is immune from temptation in the sense that there is nobody who doesn't face temptation which looking in the broader context also means that nobody is tempted by God, but everyone is tempted by their own lust. 
And there are two things that happen here. He says, carried away and enticed. Let's start with the phrase carried away. It means to draw out or to lure, which is how the ESV translates it, to lure. See, that sounds like fishing. And that's exactly what it is. It is a fishing metaphor here. The bait on the fishing hook would release a smell that draws the fish in. And when they try to eat that bait, as you know, the hook goes into their upper lip or mouth and their fisherman then pulls up and drags the fish out of the water. That dragging or pulling is what this Greek word carried away means. The lust drags you away. The part of the picture where the fish smells the blood or the bait and is compelled toward the hook, toward the bait in the first place, is what the word that James used here, enticed, means. Also a fishing term that specifically refers to the bait, enticed does. It was also used of any sort of bait in a trap designed to catch an animal. Now think about what that fish does. It smells the blood of the bait and there is an instinctive, innate desire to go towards it and to eat it, to take it. The allure of the bait is such that the fish is drawn to it. And that, James says, is exactly what our lust does to us that leads to temptation. The desire for that thing, whether it's a person, an object, a feeling, we see it, we think about it, we hear about it, then we want it. And that same fleshly innate response is to go for that thing and get it. But it's not God. It's not even the object of our desire. It's the desire itself that is the problem here. We are tempted by our own lusts our own desires. We are drawn to the sin by our own desires. We are baited. We are lured by what is within our own hearts. What a fitting description. Because when we are lured and we grab that bait like that fish who now has that worm in its mouth but now a hole in its lip flipping and flopping as it's pulled out of its natural habitat and can't breathe but still enjoying that bait in its mouth. We enjoy our sin. We idolize that object. We idolize a future possibility. And all the while, we are decimating our relationship with Christ and our relationship with the people of Christ. But man, do we enjoy that bait that's in our mouth while our upper lip is bleeding and spurting and we can barely breathe. It's dangerous. It's harmful. And I want you to notice in the verse that it's each person's own lust. It's not someone else's lust. Again, it's not even the object of our lust. You cannot, well, you can with your words, but you can't truly blame Satan 
You can't blame the world. You can't blame the world system. You can't blame God. You can't blame anyone else. The blame lies in you. Well, she wore this. Well, he did this. Well, he said I could have that. The blame is yours. There is obviously a consideration for other people and not flaunting our possessions, dressing modestly, things like that. But ultimately, it's only a problem if someone desires that thing. That's their lust. If you want to successfully overcome temptation, you need to understand that the responsibility is yours. Because if the responsibility is someone else's, what can you do? Eh, there's nothing I can do. I work with him. Got to be there every day. And going back to the first verse we looked at, well, it's God. I can't change God's sovereignty. It's his fault, so what can I do? No, it's your fault. You are to take the blame. Because when you think it's not your fault, then you can say, well, of course I'm going to sin. Why not? Nothing I can do about it. It is the external forces of the world and the world system. And so how can God expect me to deal with his heart or his behavior? I've asked. They won't change. So there I go, falling into sin. You see, we blame shift. We blame shift because it's easy. We blame shift because it's easier to say, yeah, that guy, instead of saying, I need to repent. I need to deal with my heart. If it's someone else's fault, why not sin? It's not me and my relationship with God, it's them. But here's the thing, if blaming others was acceptable, then it wouldn't be your sin that James is talking about here. But it is your lust that you're drawn by. It is your lust that you are enticed by. It is your lust that brings about temptation that brings about giving in to temptation and sin. But James is talking about that. Your sin. So take responsibility. Man, we like to blame other people, don't we? I have three boys in elementary school and younger. I hear blame shifting constantly. Well, not from around 8.30 to 3 when they're in school. But once they're back and before they go, because that's what children do. And you as an adult stand there and you're like, um, how in the world is that your brother's fault? How is that your sister's fault? How is that my fault? We made the mistake, but somehow it's someone else's fault. We blame other people. Yeah, I know. Hey, I messed up at work. I turned in the wrong paperwork right at 5 o'clock, but my supervisor never told me. He never trained me. Yeah, I know I shouldn't have gotten angry, but you made me because of what you did. You didn't need to talk to me like that. It's your fault. And we can see how if we're going to deflect the blame to someone else, we open the doors to blaming those that are even bigger and even more distant from the situation and from us. Yeah, the, never, the supervisor never trained you, but the manager never told him to. And the boss never properly gave the manager the right handbook. 
And on and on we go, and you can see why James says, don't go down this path all the way to say, well, ultimately it's God's fault. I've actually done that with my kids to help them see how silly it is. Well, it's your fault. Yeah, but mommy put that there. Yeah, but if we didn't buy that, and I say, well, what's next? If the store didn't buy that, well, if the company didn't make that, well, if God didn't create that, There's no end to where you can go if you're going to blame other people. And you can see, as outrageous as it seemed 20 minutes ago, we can see how people can naturally go bigger and bigger and bigger and finally just say, well, it's God's sovereignty. We need to be careful. Because the snowball effect of not taking responsibility will eventually end up with the one we default as in charge of all things, and that is God. You say, I, I can't see that happening. Can't you? Turn on the news. Look at society. Rather than looking at personal fault, they blame others. Even blaming people they've never even met. Entities. Oh, it's Biden's fault. It's Trump's fault. It's Thomas Jefferson's fault. Even gross generalizations like, oh, it's COVID. Oh, it's, it's the police. Oh, really? Which officer? No, no, no. Just the police in general. The whole system is faulted. You can't blame me. It's the whole system. And that's human nature. Blame anyone or anything so long as you don't blame yourself. Look, we understand that God has put kings and politicians in place. We get that. They need to do their job. I'm not saying we just don't expect our teachers to teach and don't expect our police to police. But what I'm saying is how you respond, even when they are wrong, even when they sin, you need to accept responsibility for your own sin. Yes, there are times that are more difficult than others. There are times where it's easier to not get angry, just turn off the news, close Facebook. There are times where it's harder when someone's actually physically shoving you and shouting in your face and insulting your spouse or your kids. But the sin is still yours. The desire to punch, the desire to swear, the desire to get revenge to make that person look small, to judge, to attack. That is your desire. And when you give in to it, it is your sin. And it is devastatingly ironic when you look at the world that so many want everyone else to take responsibility but will not take it themselves. We know better. We know how sick and sinful and wicked not the world, but our own hearts are. As believers, we understand the nature of sin and temptation because we understand the depraved nature of man. But to drive home the point, James explains what happens when we give into temptation in our third fundamental response to conquer temptation in the pursuit of holiness, appreciate escaping the consequences. Avoid accusing the Lord 
amplify taking the responsibility, and finally appreciate escaping the consequences. Verse 15. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Using the metaphor of human birth, James personifies lust as a woman conceiving, then giving birth to a child. With the opening word then, he continues the progression by telling us what happens next after you are carried away and enticed by your own lust. These are real-life practical results of giving in to temptation that has arisen from your own sinful desires. At this point, lust has conceived. Whatever that thing is you want, your will has given into that base desire and conception takes place. And the reason it is important to specify that the lust has conceived is because external temptation in and of itself is not sin. But that desire will often make the difference between choosing to sin or walking away or not even being tempted in the first place because it's not something you really care about. When that temptation does come, there's a thought. There's sight. There's an emotion. There's a feeling. There's a longing for that car, that woman, that piece of jewelry, that happy marriage, that house, whatever it is that starts the process. It grabs us. It makes us want it. it. We rationalize it like that animal drawn to the bait. And when that happens, lust has conceived. And once that desire has conceived, James says it gives birth to sin. When your will and behavior are united with the lust, sin is born. You act upon it, the desire is fleshed out. He writes, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. When sin comes to completion, fruition, or full maturity, death is the result. And in keeping with the analogy James uses, you could say the child of lust is sin, and the child of sin is death. Of all mankind, Christians understand the consequences of sin the most. We're not necessarily talking about the consequences in our own lives here, but in general, understanding what sin has done in our world. And the Bible teaches that sin has brought both physical as well as spiritual death. Physical in that through Adam's sin, death was brought into the world. And death occurred. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Before the fall, there was no death. Death happened to cover the sin of Adam and Eve, initiated by God first, killing the animal so the now ashamed and naked man and woman could be covered. Their shame would be covered. And then death entered into the world in humanity in the animal kingdom. Also in a specific context in 1 Corinthians 11.30, we know that God in His discipline of believers may bring physical death to those who are in gross and grave sin. We saw that in the context of those who take communion in an unworthy manner. We also know that there is spiritual death because of sin. Spiritual death being separation from God, 
which will eventually, if there's no repentance in the unbeliever, lead to eternal death, which is eternal separation from God, eternal hell. Although neither of these two are possible for the one who is born again, they help us recognize how vile and vicious sin is. Just because we can't lose our salvation, just because we won't go to hell, doesn't mean we can't appreciate how gross sin is. In fact, because Christ died for our sin, we need to appreciate even more than anyone else. We get it. But I call this appreciate escaping the consequences because if you as a believer don't care about the consequences, escaping the consequences will not be something you seek. There are people, probably rare, but there are people, correct me if I'm wrong, there are criminals who have been in prison that don't mind prison. So they don't mind the consequences of getting out and committing another crime. They don't care about the consequences. We should. And for the believer, it is a strained relationship with God. It is stunting your sanctification. It is feeling guilty because you have dishonored your God and then if you continue to do it, to to harden your conscience toward those things. We don't want that. Whether it's resting on the promise that you cannot lose your salvation or trusting in God's forgiveness, we must be careful that we do not abuse the grace of God. The reality is that we will all give in to temptation and we will sin. But what makes all the difference is our mentality in approaching those realities of life. They must be rooted in an understanding of our relationship with God and the consequences of sin for the world which remind us that God had to send His own Son to be torn apart on a tree for us. It's disgusting. And when we look at this process the earlier in the process that we stop and resist, the more likely we will avoid sin. But the longer you let the process run its course, the harder it will be to stop. You guys, we have all experienced this. You look back at some gross sin that you have committed and you look back and say, I knew God gave me a chance. I had a second thought. I was in my car. I should have driven away, but instead my anger got the best of me and I walked back into that store to tell that person off. I knew I could have kept going. There was even traffic and I missed the exit, but I made a turn and I came back and I went to her house and I knew I shouldn't have done it. And once you're there in the door, it's very hard to stop. You want it. You desire it. You're picturing it in your mind. The earlier in the process you can walk away, the easier it it is to avoid sin. And this, my friends, is why it is so important as believers that we obey the command to be content. We need to be content. Because the more you are content with your circumstances, with your finances, with your spouse, with your spouse's gray hairs, with the fact that your spouse no longer looks like the day when you married him, the less you'll be tempted. You don't want more when you're full. 
We've all been there. Looking at the dessert menu. Ah, oh, it looks so good, but I'm, I'm fine. I am stuffed. Totally content. So we need to train ourselves to be content. We won't desire anything sinful if we're happy with what we have. And we need to be content in any situation the Lord has put us in, understanding that that will constantly change. You need to be content being single. You need to be content with your spouse. You need to be content with your finances. You need to be content with your clothes. You can be, need to be content with your apartment, your home, your rental. Otherwise, these things that we see that other people have, the things that we imagine, the things that we lie to ourselves about and say, if I just have that, then I'll be happy, then I can forgive, then we'll be happy as a family, will lead to temptation and begin this horrific progression. You understand that there is a difference between thankfully wanting things in a godly way and desiring things in a sinful way. You can be content being single and yet desire to be married. But there is much sin that can be in your heart if you are discontent. You can be content being unable to have children and yet desire to have a family one day in a holy and righteous way. You can be content with your finances and desire that raise, to desire to own a home. The problem is when you say, I have to have that. And you need to work harder to get me that. And you need to be quiet and telling me to be content or I can find another church where they won't tell me those things. You've seen this. It's a ripple effect like throwing a stone in a, in a calm pond. It's not just, no, I know it's kind of bad, but if I just get that thing, I'll be happy. You said that 40 things ago. Not happy. Listen. By the world standards, there's always someone prettier. There's always someone more handsome. There's always someone richer. There's always a diamond that is bigger. There's always a newer car. There are always more fancier gadgets, faster Wi-Fi, better phone, bigger church, better preacher, more involved pastor, whatever it is. There's always something better. There is no end And if you think just getting that thing that'll end it, you are fooling yourself. All the while giving into temptation, letting your lust have control of your life, not to mention your relationships, your marriage, your children, your parenting, your friends. To be self to be content as well as to avoid temptation, another thing we can do is to be self aware. And what I mean is know what tempts you. And if you're susceptible to a lot of temptation, avoid those things. 
Some of this is impossible. But if there is a scantily clad individual on a billboard, you can find another way to get to work. They don't tend to move billboards every day. You can look the other way while you pass mile marker 63 or whatever it is. Right? If there's a, an individual that always makes you angry, stop getting in conversations with those people. If they're there for Thanksgiving every year, sit on, the, sit on the, another end of the, of the table. Don't bring up politics or whatever it is causes the anger. Now you understand that all of this is, this is not the be-all, end-all. You still need to deal with your heart. This is not going to fix these things. Right? If, you, if your sin against God is solely stealing cars, and so you move to Venice where there are no cars, that doesn't mean you've repented of your sin. It may give you an opportunity to deal with your heart like a band-aid gives your body an opportunity to heal, but the band-aid doesn't heal you. So we need to deal with the heart. Otherwise, what I just said about being self-aware, which notice I mentioned third, not first, you can take that too far. It's like, well, my kids make me angry. My spouse makes me angry, so bye-bye. No. You don't deal with temptation by adding another gross sin to your life. But avoid those things. It could be a person. It could be a place. It could be a store. It could be a certain relationship. You know, if, you, if your temptation is material wealth, maybe you need to stop hanging out with people who just buy the newest $2,000 handbag every season and encourage you to do so. Ultimately, Christian maturity or holiness is not shown through an infrequency of temptation, but the infrequency of giving in to temptation. And I say that because I don't want you to think I've been at this, I've been growing, I feel like I've been growing in the Lord, and yet I'm still always tempted. There's things around me. Ah, but are you giving in less? And these practical steps will help us avoid temptation so that we don't give in as much. Temptation. Just like those radio waves, we need to turn off the frequency. Be disinterested. Not even curious. Let me take a peek. Let me turn on the radio and flip around and see what's on the radio right now. Don't even do that if you know you're going to give in to temptation. Well, I want to give you some hope and some encouragement from 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. It's 1 Corinthians 10.13. It's a beautiful promise. And what we see here, yeah, he's involved in temptation here, but how he is involved is not tempting you to sin, But when there is temptation to sin, he will hold it back so that you, as an individual, with him knowing your heart and where you are spiritually in your spiritual walk, in your spiritual marathon race, will not allow anything in your life that you cannot endure. That's not to say you won't give in. That's not to say it will be easy to resist temptation. 
but he has provided a way of escape. And what this tells us is I've been able to to say I've been able to resist temptation, but this one there was no way I had to give in is not theologically accurate because of 1 Corinthians 10.13. There is nothing in your life that you cannot resist because God himself has provided a way of escape. And if you're honest with yourself, despite the, the, the strong magnetic pull in your heart and in your mind, if you are honest with yourself, the way of escape is so often so easy. It's a click. It's a power button. It's pressing on the gas. It's hitting reverse. It's walking away. It's closing your eyes, closing your mouth. The way of escape is not complicated. We don't need the angel Gabriel to be sent by God to swoop us away. But at the same time, resisting temptation because it is your sin is also your responsibility to take that way of escape. The Holy Spirit does His job. He will convict you. You can shut Him up, but He will convict you. He will tell you it's wrong, but He will not cause a power outage so that turns off. He will not slap the remote out of your hand. He will not stall your car so you can't go to that guy's house or whatever it is. We need to resist temptation. And we can start with these three fundamental responses to conquer temptation in the pursuit of holiness, avoid accusing the Lord, amplify taking the blame, and appreciate escaping the consequences. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Can I end with one thing that I believe I've told the men before? And this applies to all people in a general sense. And then I'm going to pinpoint it to what we're talking about this morning. I have a firm belief that whether it's in your work, in society, but especially in in spiritual things like being the head of your home, uh, being a, a mother to your children, whatever it is, If you want to remain average, if you want to be stuck in mediocrity, then never take responsibility. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be a spiritual giant, if you want to grow in holiness, then accept responsibility for your mistakes, accept responsibility for your conscious decisions to do wrong, accept responsibility for your sin. And then we grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. I look at my own life and I even listen to what Christians have said, blaming their wives for the sin of their children, blaming their bosses, blaming society, blaming political and social movements. Father, in the broadest level, guard us 
from being conformed to the world. Help us to understand the gross consequences of sin universally, historically, and even in our own lives. I pray that we would be people who do not give in to temptation, who resist temptation, who avoid blaming our sovereign, who excel in accepting responsibility, and when we accept responsibility, to, to actually care. Grow us in our hatred of sin, and may that trickle down and broaden to our disgust of temptation and our sinful lusts and desires. Give us the ability, the strength, the conscious decision-making to avoid temptation and to avoid the things that we know will tempt us, the places where temptation lie. Help us to stop blaming others, blaming you, blaming our spouses, our kids, our situations. Help us to be those who truly take responsibility in light of the wonderful goodness and grace and abilities that you have given us, the strength you have given us by your Holy Spirit. Use us to that end that you might grow us, that we might be sanctified, that we might run the race with endurance, that we might sin less, give in to temptation less day by day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.